Welcome back to Tour Guide Tell All. This week, we have a special guest coming all the way across the pond from our sister franchise, Free Tours by Foot London. Jessica O'Neill is a tour guide there, and she's going to continue on with this month's spooky, creepy theme for October and Halloween. She's going to tell us more about the plague pits of London. Here's Jessica. As a tour guide in London, one of my favorite things, walking people through these twisted, narrow streets, is of course the age. I'm originally from Vancouver, Canada, which has thousands of years of amazing First Nations history itself. But when you're talking about the urban landscape, the built environment, it's really just 150 years old. But London... 2,000 years plus of built history. The 2,000-year-old Roman city of Londinium, founded in AD 48 and packed everywhere you look with the most amazing discoveries, twisted lanes, sunken treasures and buildings, and of course, plenty of weird and macabre things beneath your feet. And as a tour guide, That's always one of my favorite things to tell people about. Now, one of my favorite places to take people to talk about what lies beneath London's streets is the Charterhouse Square. The Charterhouse Square takes its name the Charterhouse, as you can imagine, a collection of beautiful ancient buildings. I want you to imagine, you can look online at a picture, or you can imagine a square gated garden And then around it, a cobblestone street on all four sides. On one end, a modern building. The Malmaison Hotel nearby as well, beautiful Victorian building. And on the other side of the square, from where we're standing, is an Art Deco building that will take your breath away if you like 1930s architecture called Florian Court. Maybe you've seen Florian Court if you enjoy watching Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot television series from the 70s. This was his apartment building set. But let's talk about the buildings of the actual Charter House that gives its name to the Charter House Square. The Charter House has been here since 1348, a Carthusian monastery. It was deconsecrated under Henry VIII. Henry VIII, of course, said to the monks living here, become part of the Church of England, or face death. And they were hanged, drawn, and quartered, when their answer was, of course, we will not. Today, the Charterhouse has got museum inside, private mansion, an almshouse. Seniors still live here today. And historically, it's also been a boys' school. But what's left? of the massive grounds of the Charter House, or just this small gated garden. This used to be a sprawling piece of land. Where are we in London, by the way? We're really close to the Barbican. We're just a few minutes walk away from St. Paul's Cathedral and a stone's throw, quite literally, from the massive Smithfield Meat Market. We're on the border of Islington and the City of London. However, this little pocket 
has got its own very strange history. Over the years, the Charterhouse grounds got smaller and smaller. And now, as I mentioned, just this gated garden. And it had laid pretty much untouched for 650 years. That is, until the early and mid-2000s. What happened then? Transport for London is one of the largest employers of archaeologists. My master's degree is technically in archaeology. However, I always joke I've never picked up a trowel in my life. I studied cultural heritage studies, but as I always say, some of my best friends are archaeologists, and they love working for TFL, Transport for London. See, every time we have to build a new station, do maintenance on tube lines, reroute, build new tunnels, they have to hire archaeological survey. And that's the case, actually, for any new construction or development in London. A city 2,000 years old, like this one, you're bound to run into something fascinating and, of course, valuable. So the archaeological survey often takes place for years before any construction can start. And that was the case for the new cross line. Now, the cross line's been officially called the Elizabeth line. It's got quite a nice purple color, but we've been calling it the cross line in London for years and years. Ultra fast new tube line that's going to stretch from east to west across London. Apparently, there'll be a cross rail too, but this one's been delayed for so many years that who knows. When the archaeologists were digging here at Charterhouse Square, they uncovered something that had been lost in London for at least 650 years. But before I tell you what that was, I have to ask you a question. What happened many times, but most notably in 1348, 1361, and then again in a very big way in 1665? Now, some people might be thinking Great Fire. The Great Fire of London certainly plays a huge role in all of the history of the capital. Thankfully, where we're standing at the Charterhouse Square wasn't affected by the Great Fire of London. It actually burned out in fire breaks about 300 meters away from here at a spot called Pie Corner. No, 1665, one year before the Great Fire, we're talking about the plague, the pest, Ursinia pestis, the bubonic plague. Now, plague has raced through Europe and Asia countless times, but these ones in particular were some of the most severe outbreaks of plague that had ever occurred in London. The 1348 plague, it's estimated, killed up to 60, 60% of the people who lived in London. Now, the 1665 plague only, air quotes, only killed about 25% of the population, but that amounted to about 100,000 people at the time. By the way, before we talk a little bit more about the plague, let's talk about what caused the plague. Now, I used to think that I knew what caused the plague. I used to think that it was rats. And I was wrong. And then I used to think that it was caused by fleas. And I was wrong. 
It's not actually caused by either of those things. It's spread by them. It's caused by a bacteria called Ersinia pestis. When a flea bites you, it actually does this disgusting thing of kind of vomiting back into the wound. And it's this that contains the bacteria. Now, those fleas in particular liked to live on the Norwegian brown rat, also called the common rat, also called in Latin, my favorite, ratus ratus, the most rattiest of all the rats. But fewer rats than you might think. In fact, it was gerbils. Yes, the little rodent that you kept in your kindergarten classroom. Gerbils were responsible for spreading the plague around London and Europe just as much. We know that today. And by the way, if you feel safe from the plague, I know this is not the most timely thing to say. If you feel safe from the bubonic plague, you probably shouldn't because a few hundred cases a year are reported. Most of them are in Africa or in the Pacific Northwest of America. But no, we know that fleas and rats spread plague and that it's caused, of course, by Yersinia pestis. But our 14th century and even 17th century ancestors, they certainly didn't know that. Now, I like to think about science as progressing on this nice linear path, right? Before I became a historian and with a fascination in medical history, I used to think that, okay, we're just constantly adding to knowledge and then eventually we get end up with modern science and modern medicine. But that's not actually true. In fact, for a long period of time, medicine kind of sat stagnantly. We often tried a lot of things that didn't work, but it was better than doing nothing. And we really had three main beliefs of what caused the plague. And in the 14th century, the beliefs are the same as in the 17th century, even though 300 years has passed. Now, the first cause of the plague is you. You caused the plague. Yes, you're a dirty, bad sinner. You didn't pray enough. You thought impure thoughts. You did sinful deeds. And therefore, you got the plague. The bubonic plague, as well as leprosy, which we prefer to call Hansen's disease today, these diseases in particular were thought to be diseases of pure sin. If you had the plague, there was a chance that you may not even be allowed to be buried inside of the church or in consecrated ground. So we've got religion. The second cause of the plague is the four humors. Now, the four humors is a belief that inside of your body, you've got four different liquids. And they're much more than just liquids. These liquids are also connected to kind of metaphysical attributes. They, in some ways, sometimes connect to the zodiac. They're also very heavily influenced by religion. And they can affect both your personality and how you feel. And by the way, the humors are divided into hot and cold, wet and dry. And humor, the Latin word for liquid, just like the aqueous humor, the liquid in your eye, humors of the body. Now, there's four humors, of course. You've got your yellow bile, your black bile, your phlegm, and your blood. If you've got too much of one of the humors in your body, the only way to balance it is to remove it, to bring the four humors back into balance. 
So if you've got too much black bile, we're going to give you a laxative, so you will defecate, okay? If you've got too much yellow bile, we're going to give you a diuretic so that you'll urinate. And if you've got too much phlegm, we're gonna give you an emetic so you vomit. But if you've got too much blood, we're going to bloodlet you. Having too much blood was heavily associated with having a high fever. It was also heavily associated with having a lot of the passion and anger. And these were not attributes that you really wanted to have in the 17th century. You kind of want to be a bit more weak. Now, if you're thinking about bloodletting, the first place that people's minds often go to is to leeches. But if you thought about that, well, then maybe in a past life you were very wealthy. Because in order to afford leeches in London in the 17th century, you would have had to get them from a very posh leech importer. And if so, you would have displayed them in a beautiful container. You may even have a plated silver or gold leech container that you kept in your pocket. And you might bring that leech container out when you want to show off, when you want to demonstrate that you've got a little bit of money. You might fondle that leech container when you're talking to somebody that you fancy. Now, of course, if you're going to get your blood let, if you don't have a lot of money historically, you're not going to go use leeches you're going to go to the barber. Yes, you heard me correctly. The barber has an old fashioned name, the surgeon. Barber surgeons or just barbers or just surgeons were tasked with minor surgeries. It was believed that you should have your blood let to keep your body in balance, to balance your humors. For women of menstruating age, then you would have your blood let twice per year. Everybody else is going to be four times a year, whether you need it or not. And you would go to the barber surgeon for, for other minor surgeries as well. They might squeeze your carbuncles, pull your teeth sell you the urine that was considered a good cure-all for nearly every disease. They would um, sew your wounds, minor surgeries. At this point in the 17th century, by the way, you're thinking, what about the major surgeries? There's no such thing as major surgeries. We don't have the germ theory of medicine by this point, And really anything beyond very simple amputations, not possible without shock or bacterial infection and certain death. It was tried occasionally successful. No, but the barber surgeon is going to kind of fill in the gap of what we would think of today as a general practitioner, which we didn't really have at this point in history. Doctors were more philosophical, religious. Um, They didn't really touch you. But the barber surgeon certainly would, and they were more working class, not, not working class, trades class. They learned their trade. And if you think about it, the barber, and they also cut your hair because they happen to have sharp implements. And if you think about it today, if you've ever seen the classic symbol of a barber shop, it's the red and white striped pole. Well, this pole replaced the fact that historically they used to hang bloody cloths or bandages outside of their shops. And they would attract flies and maggots, and of course, and things. And even they would put big bowls of blood in the window to show what you could have done inside. And it was considered just kind of disgusting because of all of the flies that it was catching. And it was replaced in about the 15th century with a red and white stripe pole. And the red and white stripes represent the clean and bloody bandages flapping around in the wind. The domes on the top and bottom represent the cups 
that would capture your blood and the pole itself represents the staff that you would grip to make your veins pop. So the barber surgeon is going to help you if you are suffering from the plague. Probably not going to work. By the way, if you've been hit by a horse cart and you're bleeding to death, what's the preferred treatment? Bloodletting! Um, George Washington had four of his six pints of blood let from his body just before he died as well. So this was a really, really common treatment right up into the early 20th century. So that's your second cause of the plague and maybe some treatments there. But the third cause of the plague, and this one is my personal favorite because it shows that we're starting to think a little bit more clearly, is miasma theory. Now, miasma theory is the theory that um, things that smell bad can make you sick. And I like this theory, as I mentioned, because it, it shows that we're kind of getting there because things that do smell bad do make you sick, but they make you sick for a different reason. For instance, feces, fetid water, spoiled food. These things, they make you, they smell terrible, but they make us sick because they get into our mucous membranes, they get into our mouth, not because we smell them. But this was still a really common belief, so much so that women would carry sachets of nice smelling perfume and potpourri around with them. That's where the origin of the sachet that you might have in your lingerie drawer comes from. But in particular, it's the plague doctor. Now, I used to have to explain the plague doctor at length. And in fact, I normally show a photo. If you've never seen a drawing of a plague doctor, hop online right now and have a look at one. But you've probably seen them lately. This is the long cape. The mask with the big hooked nose that looks like a bird, small little round John Lennon glasses and a big hat. And of course, this hooked beak was filled with vinegar, sometimes with flowers, not usually, and with herbs. And this would be the idea that if you smelled the strong smelling herbs and vinegar, it would prevent you from getting sick. And did this work? Of course not, because you were constantly going into all of these plague-ridden houses packed with fleas that are full of the Yersinia pestis bacteria and you're going to get bitten by them. It doesn't matter how much strong smelling vinegar that you're smelling. But of course, the plague doctor is an enduring stereotype. So we've got our three causes of the plague. But we still don't have a way to deal with all the dead bodies. As I mentioned, 100,000 bodies in 1665. Now, what you might not realize is that London was still a walled city at this point. Now, when I say London and City of London, I, of course, mean two different things. If you look on a map of Greater London, you'll see 32 boroughs surrounded by the M25 motorway. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the wonderful theatres of the West End or the huge Hampstead Heath up in the north of London or Clapham full of Aussies or Borough Market. I'm talking purely about the original one square mile of the ancient Roman city of Londinium, which today is curiously called the City of London. The City of London is a city within London. It's a part of London. It was a walled area. It's still where the majority of people lived. And even though we didn't know what caused the plague, we did know that, A, these bodies, they are sinners, they smell bad, so they've got miasma, and they could get our humors out of balance. 
So we've got to get rid of them. Now, normally, what do we do at this point in history with our bodies? We're going to bury them in the churchyard. However, despite the fact London had more than 50 churches at this time, the, just the one square mile, rather, there's still not enough room. We're going to have to take them out of London. We can't take them too far. Charles II is king in 1665, and he is terrified of the plague. We've also got the fact that ringing London, some of you may know, there's quite a lot of posh places to live, the home counties, as we call them, and then, as now, big manors and estates, and people certainly did not want the dead coming past. It was kind of like that Monty Python sketch. People didn't want the plague carts to be coming past. You had to find a place close enough to the city of London that you wouldn't offend neighboring counties, but far enough away that they're not going to be within the walled city contaminating where people live. And that, of course, becomes the plague pits. If you head online, you can actually look at a plague pit map of London and you'll see little red skull and crossbones where there's all of these different plague pits spread all over Greater London, all up in the north, mostly in the east and a few in the west. Surprisingly, many of them are clustered around the areas of Soho and Marleybone. And you might think to yourself, huh, that's strange. That's in Westminster. Those are quite posh areas historically. They were, but Soho didn't really exist yet. Soho was hunting grounds before the Great Plague of 1665. And we actually sheared down much of the hunting grounds in order to bury the dead there. And in fact, the name Soho doesn't come from south of anything. It's not like New York. This is not south of Houston or south of Hoburn. This is a hunting cry. Soho, Soho, Soho. This was a way for you to get your dogs to come back and bring you the ducks or the foxes that you'd been out hunting. And these were the royal hunting grounds close enough to the palaces on Whitehall where the king and royals would be staying. And so we, of course, replaced it all with plague pits. And then when the grass started growing back, we built King Charles II's two favorite businesses, which were brothels and theaters. <laughs> That's kind of the, what it is still today. Uh, you also have many, many plague pits in London in the East. I sometimes joke it's because the East was poor, but no, back then it's because you, of course, had lots and lots of land. You had monasteries, you had farms, you had empty open land, and this was perfect places for plague pits. And of course, you had a nice bit of land right here at the Charterhouse Square. See, back in the early 2000s, I told you that Transport for London was doing excavation. And when they did, the archaeologists discovered something that had been missing in London for the last 650 years. Plague pits. They're believed to be the largest in Europe. And beneath our feet, standing at Charterhouse Square, we're standing on top of the skeletal remains of anywhere between 30 and 70,000 people who died the 1348, 1361, and 1665 plagues. Now, I told my husband about this a couple of years ago when I first discovered the macabre secrets beneath the charter house. And he kind of shrugged and he said, well, yeah. And I said, what do you mean, yeah? This is unbelievable. Plague pit, huge plague pit. Most of the other plague pits in London, you know, you've got a few hundred, a thousand maybe, Aldgate, Spitalfields. Golden Square, but this, something to the next level. And he just said, well, you know, we still do that. 
I said, whatever do you mean? He said, we designate plague pits. See, my husband works for the NHS. This is far too timely of a topic. But part of what he does is emergency planning. The NHS stands for the National Health Service. They liaise with all the other big agencies across the government and coming up with a plan for what would happen in the event of a plague. And they do modeling based on the 1348 plague, based on the 1665 plague. At 60%, we need a place to quickly bury five and a half to six million people in London. That's nine million population. And so plague pits have been designated. In the north, Hampstead Heath. In the east, Victoria Park. In the south, Clapham Common. And in the west, a park that maybe you've been to. And if you've not been to, I'm sure you've heard of it. And that's Hyde Park, which has space for 1.25 million of us. Now, before you get too fearful of the idea that Hyde Park is a former plague pit, don't get too precious about it. Hyde Park has been a site of massive public execution throughout history and has been used as a plague pit in so many different plagues that in the 1890s, when they were digging Hyde Park Corner Station, they had to develop a new drill bit technology because the existing drills kept snapping on the calcified human remains in Hyde Park. Hyde Park is just adjacent to Buckingham Palace, Kensington, some of the most luxurious and posh places in the world. Yet it too is a plague pit, just like the Charterhouse Square. Now, as I always say to my friends and family when they visit London and to my tour guests, if you're standing in a park, a garden, a square, or a market, look around, because the only reason it's there is because it's a plague pit. Happy Halloween. Thanks again to our fellow tour guide from Free Tours by Foot in London, Jessica O'Neill, for sharing what I'm going to go out on a limb and say was the creepiest of all our creepy content, at least thus far, uh, for our special Halloween and October editions of Tour Guide Tell All. You've been listening to a little mini episode of Tour Guide Tell All. If you enjoy what you heard, please look us up on Patreon. We always love our patrons. We try to do special things for them always, but we can cannot thank them enough uh, because they allow us to get these things done. We'd love to interact with you, so check us out on the Twitters at Tour Guide Tell. Stay tuned this Thursday when we have another episode dropping, this one on Rose O'Neill Greenow, a Confederate spy, and some of her fellow spy ladies. All of that coming up on Thursday. Tour Guide Tell All is researched, recorded, edited, and mixed by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and Candon Arseniega. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. Help support us and get some special perks by becoming a patron. And if you don't want to sign up for our monthly commitment, you can also send us a virtual tip on Venmo at Tour Guide Tell All, or get some Tour Guide Tell All swag from the merch store, all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.